All right, let's turn to the Lord's Word to us. First reading is Exodus 34, verses 1 through 9. It's page 82 in the Church Bible. Exodus 34, 1 through 9. This is going to be the text that is primarily our sermon text this evening. Exodus 34. This is the Word of God. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. In our New Testament text, John 1, 1-18. John chapter 1, 1 through 18. It's page 938. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. 
And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. O Lord God, please teach us now by Your Word. Please write it on our minds, write it on our hearts, plant it deep, uh, that we might indeed bear fruit for Christ's glory. It's for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. In in Exodus 34, in the context there, uh, it's shortly after Moses has gone up the mountain to meet with the Lord the first time. And that first time, uh, he goes up the mountain to meet with God. He, he leaves, and he's gone for 40 days. And the people of Israel are clustered around the base of the mountain, and the top of the mountain is shrouded with a cloud of glory. It's wreathed with smoke. And the people are wondering. They haven't heard from God. It's been, it's, 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 it's been 40 days. Moses has been up there. They don't know what happened to him. They get tired of waiting. There were, there were these events, right? They started with such uh, drama and anticipation. There's the thunder. There, there's the, the voice of God thundering out from the cloud over the mountain. Moses goes up. But then there's just no news for over a month. And I, I think they begin to realize, they begin to think that it's going to be a lot easier for them if they have a version of this God that they can manage themselves. That they don't have to wait on. Yahweh is clearly not in the business of accommodating His people here. That's probably what they're thinking. This Yahweh, this Lord, asks a lot of you. He's too much of a God, really. He's too much in control. Uh, uh, It's going to be much easier for them if they have a God they can manage, who doesn't keep them waiting in the wilderness, a God whom they can touch, a God whom they can see, not this incomprehensible God of mystery hidden in the clouds. So they turn to uh, to Aaron, Moses' brother, they say, let's, let's have a God we can see, touch, and control. Uh, let's, see, let's have a God we can manage. So they throw together their gold. Aaron makes this calf, this young bull, a symbol of strength in the ancient world. And Aaron says, here's your God, Israel. Here's Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt, this bull. And they hold a feast to Yahweh while worshiping this bull. They're still telling themselves they're worshiping the Lord, uh, but... Uh, there in God's place is this golden calf. This is something the Israelites celebrate. They worship like the pagan nations worship. They eat and drink and revel in immorality in the midst of their idol worship. That's what's going on down at the base of the mountain. Well, Moses is up on top of the mountain, and Moses is there, and the scene's entirely different. There he's, he's up there in holiness, meeting with God, communing with God, Um, He's been, as it were, face-to-face with God. He's been hearing God speak His law. He's been there with God as God writes His law on these tablets of stone, uh, making this covenant in stone uh, with with the people. And then then God sees what's happening, uh, uh, what Israel's doing down at the base of Sinai. And he, He tells Moses, and he's furious with his people, Moses then intercedes for them. He pleads with the Lord to have mercy on them. 
But then Moses takes the stone tablets down the mountain and he comes and he sees for himself what the people of Israel are doing. And he is, he is, he is uh, furious with them. It's like Israel has run away with a prostitute on her honeymoon. God has just brought her out of Egypt and she's running after idolatry. So Moses smashes the stone tablets. And it's like the covenant is broken right from the start. No sooner has the covenant been cut into stone than the stones are smashed because of Israel's unfaithfulness and their sin and their idolatry. God brings a measure of judgment on the people. The people are disciplined. And then God's ready to reaffirm the covenant again. So he commands Moses. This is where we are in Exodus 34. This is where we are jumping in the the story here. He commands Moses, cut two new stone tablets. I'm going to write once again these Ten Commandments that that summarize the covenant stipulations. I'm going to write them on the stone tablets again. So Moses, you cut those stone tablets and you bring them up the mountain and we'll, we'll do this again. And there, on the top of the mountain, once again, the glory cloud is there. The Lord comes down himself. And he stands with Moses. He meets with him again. And then we see something that's fascinating and rich and uh, full, of, full of wonderful implications for us. It's really the focus of our, of our text this evening, the focus of the sermon tonight. It's what God says in verses 5 and 6 to Moses and following, but especially verses 5 and 6. He comes to Moses in the midst of all that's just happened, in the wake of Israel's faithlessness from the get-go. It's no sooner as the covenant made than it seems to be broken. In the midst of all this, God comes and says, Moses, let me remind you of who I am. Let me tell you my name. He could have said so many things. Uh, He could have said, Moses, my name is Almighty. I am the King. I am the, the Creator. I am the Judge. I am the Sustainer. I am the Everlasting God. I am the Unchangeable God. He could have said so many different things. But he says, Moses, this is the name that I want you to know. This is the name I want the people of Israel to know about who I am. And he says, I am, first of all, he says, I am the Lord. That's his covenant name. That's his family name. That's the name that only his people get to call him. It's the name that um, he tells Moses back in Exodus 3.15. He says to them, my name is I am the Lord Yahweh, uh, the covenant Lord. Um, God has every right to no longer go by this name for these Israelites. They don't deserve to call him by this covenant name anymore. The Lord, Yahweh. He has every right never to use this name with them again. Um, They've rejected him. They've broken the covenant. But he comes and he says, I am still the covenant Lord. He says it twice. I am the Lord. The Lord. To emphasize it for them. This is the name that we, the people of God alone, can use. What does this name convey to us? The Lord. Well, it conveys kind of two, two different things. First, it conveys God's aseity. That's the big word, um, the big theological word, aseity. It means his otherness, his holiness, uh, um, everything that makes God, God in himself, apart from who we are. Uh, it, it's really beyond definition and description. Right, he says, I am who I am. He's saying, I can't be defined by anything outside of me. I can't be uh, uh, defined by, by anything that's created. I'm the creator. I am who I am. 
But it also tells us not just that God is so holy and unchangeable and transcendent. It also points to his faithfulness. And this is, this is really what it's driving. It's his covenant commitment, his loyalty that he's bound himself to his people in this unwavering commitment to save them and to bless them. And at this moment, he's saying to Moses, and he's saying to all Israel through Moses, remember my name. Yes, you've just broken the covenant, but remember who I am. I am Yahweh, and I swore I would save you, and I am going to save you. Remember his name. Then he goes on. So he says he is the Lord, the Lord God. But then he goes on and he tells them, he unpacks this for them. In case you've forgotten Israel, here's what I mean when I say my name is the Lord. He unpacks it. And first thing he says is that he is merciful. The word mercy here is the word uh, that means compassion. It's God's sympathy. It's God's tenderness towards the weak, the lowly, the poor, the downtrodden, the marginalized, the sufferers, the sinners. It's, it's, um, it's God's mercy and uh, it, it's His compassion on those who have sinned against Him. Uh, we, we see this mercy on display as He comes to His people in, in Egypt. Slaves in Egypt. He has compassion on them. Even though they don't deserve this salvation, he brings it to them. We see this, all, you know, it, it punctuates so much of the Bible. Think of Hannah, poor, childless, barren, despised second wife that she is. And, and the Lord has mercy on her, he has compassion on her. Think of Ruth or David or, or so many of, other, of the others through Scripture. God is the God who is merciful and compassionate. He then says, he says, I am merciful. He also points to his grace. He says, I am a gracious God. He, he, he's pointing to the favor and the kindness that he shows to his people, especially when they don't deserve it. Um, and he's not just, his grace isn't just fair, unmerited favor, it's, it's demerited favor. It, this is God's blessing on people who deserve cursing. Sinners don't deserve to be blessed. The word blessing in the Bible first shows up in, in, this, in the Garden of Eden. Before sin is in the picture, God is blessing His people and blessing His creation. After the fall into sin, we do not expect and should not expect to see blessing anymore. Blessing belongs to a sinless world. Cursing is what belongs to a sinful world. But here, God is bringing this... Uh, pre-fall word to a post-fall world. And he's saying, I am pouring out my grace and my blessing on sinners who deserve curses. Isn't it remarkable that God takes these two words, his mer- he points to how he's merciful and how he's gracious, puts them together, and this is how he leads off with what his name means to his sinful people. It's as though he's saying, the first thing you should know about the Lord, about me, is that I am compassionate and kind and gracious to sinners who deserve nothing but the opposite of those things. I bless sinners who deserve to be cursed. That is the foundation of everything that this covenant with his people is built on. It's how it all starts. And loved ones, it's it's the foundation of his relationship with us too, isn't it? 
None of God's actions towards us depend on our worth or our goodness or our qualifications to be in His covenant. It all starts with Him. His mercy. His goodness. His kindness. His grace. It's wonderful to, uh, that as, as, we, as we try to you know, get this idea down into our hearts, uh, to, th- to think about how God's covenant doesn't rest on who I am. It rests on who He is. It doesn't depend on my faithfulness or my obedience. I think sometimes we can think that God's acceptance of us and our place in His covenant family depends on our sanctification. Uh, that that our, our acceptance before God, our justification, depends on how well we're doing in our sanctification. That, that God is more pleased with me the more sanctified I become. But no. God says everything is based on my mercy and grace towards you. You're accepted uh, because of who I am, not because of who you are. And this is the... This is the great refrain of Scripture. God is gracious to sinners. He saves sinners. He saves us. It's all based on who He is. So this is how the Lord starts, with His mercy and then His grace. But then He tells Moses another thing, a third thing. He says is that He is long-suffering. You could translate it, slow to anger. Both words convey the same idea here, which is that God doesn't have a short fuse with His people. He is patient. He is, he is uh, more patient than we could ever imagine. More patient than we can fathom. Think of how um, uh, <laughs> impatient he could have been with the Israelites. How quickly they've fallen. Here they are. It's, it's, it's um, like I said earlier, it's, it's like the bride running away on the honeymoon. They're, they've just been saved from Egypt and they're already running from him and betraying him and uh, uh, committing spiritual adultery. But he's patient with them. And his patience with them goes on and on and on. It lasts all the way through the, the, the wickedness of the kings of Israel, all the way through the exile, and all the way to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is with us, too, loved ones. The Lord is long-suffering with us. It's a glorious reminder that um, he doesn't get... He, he's, not, he's not vindictive. He's not, he's not watching for us and waiting for us to mess up and slip up so that He can pounce on us and discipline us for it. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's long-suffering with each of us, with each of our besetting sins and the, the sinful habits we can't seem to kick. He's patient. Fourth, He says, that He's abundant in goodness. Everything he said so far really has its roots here in this fourth thing. God has this, uh, this goodness in himself. All his mercy, grace, and long-suffering, that's all flowing out of his goodness to us. The word here for goodness is the word chesed in Hebrew. It's a wonderful word, chesed. Uh, it's difficult to say, but uh, it means his steadfast love, his loyalty, his covenant kindness, it's this steadfast, unchanging love that he's describing for us here. All these other things are flowing out of this aspect of his character. And all of this, loved ones, is, is rooted in the being of God. 
Remember last Lord's Day evening, if you were here, um, how we looked at the first part of the question and answer to the Shorter Catechism, who is God? And we said, we we were looking at how God is uh, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Uh, and, And now we're in the second section there, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But what we need to remember is that those two halves go together. Um, that, that as we look at who God is in his goodness towards us, in his steadfast love for us, that's in the second half of that question and answer. But we need to hold that together with the first half, that he's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his love for us, in his goodness towards us, and his grace towards us. That's a wonderful thing because it means God is not temporary in his love for us. Uh, He's unchangeable in it. He's not going to, his goodness is not going to run out for his people. Loved ones, his mercy and his grace cannot be measured, cannot run out, cannot change. God's goodness towards you cannot run out, cannot change. Do you believe that? For God's goodness to stop, he would have to stop being God. That's what the text here is saying. And that's what our catechism is teaching. Uh, this, this is where we see this doctrine of God, um, which is what, what we're studying tonight, um, where this study of who God is is, is is so important for our real lives. This isn't stuff that just belongs in a seminary textbook, the doctrine of who God is. Uh, this is the stuff that we need to live by. He says that he is good, and so that's what I need to trust him for, even in the midst of, uh, of suffering and struggle and difficulty. I need to hold on to the fact that he is unending and unchanging in his goodness towards me. That is the, that is the sort of doctrine that will, that will get you through the, the difficulties and the everyday exhaustions. So all this goodness of God is rooted in his being as the eternal one, eternally good towards us in in his steadfast love. Fifth, though, we see also God says that he's abundant in truth. We could also translate that as faithfulness, that God is true and he is faithful. He's true to his word is really the sense, that he is the God who has made promises to us and he's not going to break those promises to us. And this is what so much of his covenant also, again, rests on. Um, His faithfulness to his people isn't depending on them, it's depending on his promise. He's the God who is truth itself and who cannot lie. So God says, Moses, here's my name. Here's what my name means. Then he unpacks it a little more uh, in the next few verses there, in verse 7. He says, he is the God who is keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So he starts out by saying who he is. I am the Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and truth and faithfulness. That's who I am. And now, here's how that acts. Here's what God, the God who's like this, here's what he does. Two things. First, he says, he forgives. Again, we've already seen God has identified himself as the one who's gracious and forgiving, but here he drives the point home again that he is the one who forgives sins. 
He mentions the three big categories of sin in the Old Testament. He mentions iniquity, transgression, and sin. Every type of sin, every kind of sin, He is the one who forgives them. His forgiveness isn't limited to just a certain kind of sin. It's for all sins. He's not stingy in His forgiveness. He's free with it. He delights to forgive. He doesn't do it. He doesn't just forgive a few people. He forgives thousands. Or we could read the text as saying, He forgives to a thousand generations. He forgives. He also judges justly. He's also righteous. This is another one of those moments in Scripture. They happen so often. Where, where we just see something so surprising and fascinating in what the Lord says. Because He's just said what? I forgive sins to a thousand generations. And now He says, the next breath, I will by no means clear the guilty. What does He mean? He's, he's showing us here His holiness, His righteousness, His justice. He, he cannot pass over sin. He is a just judge. How can God hold these two things together? This is, this is just amazing. This is uh, right here in the text. We see this so clearly, that God is both the gracious, merciful God who forgives sins and at the same time a God who can by no means let sin go unpunished. This is pointing us to God's, uh, to God's simplicity, to the pureness of His being. It's not like His attributes are parts of a car. Right? There's the engine and then the transmission, the tires, the windshield. God isn't like that. He's pure. He, all that He is, is all that He is. Not one attribute is more dominant than the other. They're all just aspects of His one singular pure character. And He is both just and gracious and good. The fascinating thing here is how this then works out. So this is who He is. How does this work out? in his relationship with his people in Exodus 34. The big question is, if God is the God who is righteous and just, how is he also going to be the God who is forgiving and gracious? How will he satisfy his justice and show forth his goodness? He doesn't really give us a clear answer in the text. But if we read on in the passage, we see a, a big clue to what the answer is. And Moses' response. Moses hears God's name. He bows down immediately, hastily, and he worships him. And then he says in verse 9, If now I have found, faith, found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Moses is saying, I will be a mediator between the Lord and His people. I will plead grace for their sake. I will stand between them and God, between the holy God and His unholy people, and I will pray for mercy for them. This is a clue to us as to how God can be both gracious and just. He says there's going to need to be a mediator bearing the sins of my people. But of course, Moses is just a stand-in, a temporary picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, the, this is the answer to the great question, how can a holy God forgive sinners? Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says this, when Jesus had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty on high. So in in Jesus, the great mediator, the one who's greater than Moses, as Hebrews makes a point of saying, Jesus is the one who purges our sins, who comes in between holy God and unholy people and shows forth God's grace and justice together at the same time as he lays down his life for us. It's a glorious thing. But, but loved ones, even as Jesus is the mediator here, and Moses is pointing towards him as the mediator who, who uh, brings, this, um, brings the answer to the question of how God can be just and gracious, he's, he's more than that. He's also the one who reveals to us the glory of God. As we, as we look at this um, account in uh, Exodus 34 this evening, we might be tempted to be jealous of Moses. Um, I remember as a kid reading... Uh, children's Bible with my mother and seeing the, the, the artist's depiction of uh, some, some of the glory of God passing before Moses as he's huddled in the rock and thinking, I wish I could have been there. Uh, but you know, as we look at this text, um, yes, it would have been glorious to be there. Uh, Moses is there. He sees the physical manifestation of God's glory. He hears God speak what his name is. But loved ones, I think Moses would trade places with any of us in this worship service tonight, in an instant, for what he had there on the mountain. Because we've seen so much more of the glory of God. Moses is there, and God tells him, you'll get to see my back. Just, you'll, you'll get to see you know, a, a window onto my glory. I'm going to tell you my name. This is who I am. But, loved ones, we've seen so much more clearly in our Lord Jesus, the face of God and the glory of God. John 1.14, we read this earlier. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of His Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying, we've seen the full display of the glory of God better than Moses did in the face of Jesus Christ. We've seen the full display of God's glory. We've seen His face in Jesus and, and think, about, think about what God told Moses there in Exodus 34 about his name. He said, I'm the, I'm the Lord. I'm the covenant God. I am the one who is merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love and truth. That's what God tells Moses. That's what God shows his people uh, time and time again in the Old Testament. But when Christ comes, it's so much clearer and brighter. The picture is so much uh, clearer for us. John 1 sums up what we see in Christ like this. We have seen His glory full of grace and truth. I think those words are an echo back to what Moses is seeing in the Lord uh, in Exodus 34. John is saying, in Jesus, that grace and truth that God said, that's who I am to Moses, that's become so much clearer and fuller. He's, he is filled with this covenant love, this chesed. John says this uh, again in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Jesus has made known who God is, what His name is, who He is for us, and all the glories of His uh, his grace and His mercy, His justice and holiness to us. So as we think about this question, who is God? We need to see that, uh, that where we are going to find the answer most clearly is in Christ Himself. 
Jesus himself is the full revelation of who God is. Do you, do you believe that, loved ones? That Jesus is everything that God is on display. I think sometimes we can think about God in a pretty unorthodox way, pretty unbiblical way. We can think about God being the mean one. Jesus is the nice one. Jesus is different from the, the mean God of the Old Testament. Many people have said these kinds of things. That Jesus somehow, by his death for us, bends the Father's arm behind his back to make him forgive us. That is not at all the picture that we get in anywhere in Scripture. Those are, those, are, um, those are lies. Jesus is all that God is on display for us. So when we see Christ and who he is, that's who God is. And what do we see in him? Grace and truth. The glories of his covenant love for his people. So loved ones, just by way of application as we close this evening, let me call you and encourage you once again to fix your attention and your affection on Christ. Uh, make, Make your goal this week, your big goal and everything you've got going on, to see Christ more clearly and love him more dearly. To, to know more about who He is and His grace, mercy, truth, His goodness, His love. And look, look on Him and listen to Him in His Word. And commit yourself to trusting in Him. We are like those Israelites in Exodus 34. We are without any claim on His goodness. But we know who He is. And we rest in who He is, not in who we are. He's the covenant God who keeps every promise and loves us forever. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for who you are, the glories of your character, your attributes, especially as we see them on display in our Lord Jesus. We pray you'd fill our hearts with trust and confidence in you, that we would rest not on who we are, but on who you are. Not on what we've done, but what you've done. This we pray for our Savior's sake. Amen.